Acts 5, verse 40. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now now at that time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. All right, I'm going to stop there. Let me just pick it back up at verse 40. From It says that they, they took the apostles and they had them flogged. And, and uh, um, they went on their way considering themselves worthy to suffer, sh- suffer shame for his name. You know, did the thought ever come to you that if you're serving God, everything should go well? That in some way, if you're, if you're doing what He expects you to do, everything should go kind of well. Because His blessing should just abound. And His grace should just abound. So what were these guys doing? In Acts chapter 5, they were preaching. They were preaching in the synagogue. And all of a sudden, they get thrown into prison. And they get put before a court. And they get flogged. So what happens, what happens when we're doing things right, when we're following God, and then all of a sudden, the world seems to be collapsing. Many things start collapsing around us. What's going on? Look in, in uh, Psalm 91. In Psalm 91. <clears throat> this psalm, I think, can only really be appreciated in light of eternity. In Psalm 91, there is this tremendous uh, protection that the Lord promises to His people. And it's a great psalm. In fact, if, if you have trouble with anxiety, this is a great psalm to meditate upon. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. Of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord, for for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. So you see, there's this tremendous protection that's promised. And if you take this verse, and you say, this is the verse that I'm, this is the, this is the passage, Psalm 91, that I'm going to grab onto during my life. And if you only take this and focus in on it, there's going to be times of great disillusionment. Because seeking God does not always mean a troubled free life. These men were seeking God to the point where they were preaching all the time. 
And they had this church that was growing. And they end up in jail, and they end up being beaten. You know, it is, it is this same psalm, Psalm 91, that, that uh, uh, the enemy quotes, Satan quotes to Jesus. In Psalm 91, verse 11, it says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes that verse to Jesus in the temptation in Matthew 4. And Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He says to Jesus, go ahead, throw yourself down. You know, you will go through times in your life, times of even service to the Lord, and you will wonder, am I not serving God? Why is this happening to me if I am serving God? If I'm serving God, why is all this happening? But just remember that it happened to very godly people in the Scriptures. You know, concerning Jesus and His ministry, Watchman Nee writes that, that if you look at Jesus in the practical sense, here He was on the cross, His disciples had been scattered, one of them had betrayed Him, and you wonder, where, where is this going? But God's deliverance ultimately comes. God's deliverance ultimately comes. We understand Psalm 91 in the light of eternity. We understand Psalm 91. Because exactly what it says comes true only in the light of eternity. If we think that seeking God in this life will lead to a trouble-free life, we're wrong. It's going to free us from a lot of troubles that would come upon us, but there are still troubles on earth that come our way. And there's still troubles that come even in service. And that's what we see. Okay, let's turn back to Acts chapter 6, reading from verse 1. Acts chapter 6, reading from verse 1. Now at that time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of, the spirit of, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Okay, so we see at this time in the book of Acts, they are in in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, they were continuing to increase in number. So the church was still increasing. But during this increase, some troubles arose. Every church has troubles. We've discussed this. And we don't abandon it because it has troubles. We may feel like abandoning it. it. But if we just abandon things every time there's troubles, be sure the next place we will go, the same troubles will follow. You want to abandon a marriage? 
because you're having troubles? Be sure it follows into the second marriage. You want to abandon that one because it has troubles? Be sure it will follow you to the third marriage. And I see this all the time. But the trouble that was arising in particular was a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews because, the native, because of the native Hebrews, their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. This is actually in the daily serving. The distribution of the, the resources that were there in the church, there were Hebrew women, there, there were Hellenistic Jews. These are Jews by nationality, but they were Jews of the diaspora, which means that they were Jews who were born outside the land of Israel, and now they had moved back to the land of Israel. They had moved back and they had become believers in these great conversions that we read about in the, early, in, in the book of Acts. That many people kept on coming. But they had been born outside. They were Hellenistic Jews, which means that they were Jews by nationality, but they were Greeks by culture and by language. So, just as if uh, uh, someone may be Indian by nationality, but growing up in the United States. If they go back to India, they very much live like an American. They were born here, but they're Indian by nationality and they've returned to their homeland. That's exactly like these people. And the complaint arose against the native Hebrews. So the ones, so, so, so there was this complaint arose against the native people who lived in that part of the land. And the complaint was, that their widows were being overlooked. Now, that's a big problem. You know, there, there's a lot said, actually, about widows in, 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 uh, in the Scripture. So, in Deuteronomy, it talks about the care that's supposed to be given to widows. Uh, Pharisaic Judaism didn't take care of widows very well. And we know that because in Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you devour widows' houses. Because the Pharisees would go in when the woman would become a widow and tell them to give their money to the synagogue and that they would then just take care of the widow. And that really, and Jesus said, you devour the widow's houses. And immediately after that, in, in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus starts speaking about the widow's might, the widow who gave everything. She had one penny left and she put it in. And he said she is given more. And then in James chapter 1, verse 27, the New Testament tells us that true and undefiled religion is to, visit, is, to keep, is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So you want to know what true religion is, the scriptures say? It's taking care of widows. So in the New Testament, we are commanded very much to take care of widows. And it also gives very specific instruction what kind of widow, uh, widows? And you say, well, what kind? I mean, are there more than one kind of widow? The Bible says, yes, there are. It says that it is the church's responsibility to take care of widows who are over 60 years old and who have had children and who are not busybodies and labored in the church. It says, take care of those widows. But interestingly, the scriptures also command children that they are supposed to take care of their parents when, when their parents are in need. They're supposed to help out their parents. So if the widow has had children, why aren't her children taking care of her? So the category becomes very small that the church is supposed to ultimately care for financially. It is to those who have had children that the children for some reason are dead and can't take care of them. 
and have labored in the church. But it's... But the Scriptures say here, remember in the early book of Acts, there was this distribution, and we have talked about this before, and these particular widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. And this, was, this overlooking was being done by the native Hebrews. So, do you think that, that, that there was some prejudice here? Well, duh, yes there was. This is not a new thing. This has been going on, and you see it right here in the Scriptures. There's this prejudice going on between the local Hebrews and the, and the Jews of the diaspora that had moved back into the land that were Jews by, by nationality, but Greek by language and culture. That their widows were being overlooked. And so a complaint. The scriptures talk about this word complaint. It's, it's like a, a smoldering fire. You know, something just smoldering. And you know, with a, something that's just smoldering, it's really dangerous because your house can catch on fire and you just don't know that the fire's there. And so it's, it's real problems are starting to arise. But this is a real problem. Imagine if you heard of a church that abuses a certain category of widows because of their nationality or because of, of what country they're from. I mean, it, you wouldn't think very highly of that church. That's the New Testament church. So when people say, oh, our church is just like the New Testament church, you say, oh, so you don't feed your widows? I mean, the New Testament church had problems. And so, the twelve, the twelve apostles, so remember, how were there twelve? There were twelve because Matthias was chosen as the twelfth, and he was marked as one of the twelve. Remember, Paul is not on the scene yet. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men. Okay, so the twelve get together, they say, look, we can't care for every need in this, in this, in this gathering. In this, we've got thousands. Remember, there were 3,000 that were saved, then there were 5,000, and then we have other times where it says they just kept on increasing. So we don't know the exact number. We know it's got to be a lot over 8,000. And, and, and uh, um, a, a lot over 8,000, that was 8,000 men. So if you look at it, you know, this may, be a, may have been a church of 30 or 40,000 at this point. And so that's a busy operation. That's like some of the big churches here in town. Big operation going on. They said, we can't, care to, we can't tend to all these needs. So what you're going to have to do, we think it desirable that we teach the Word of God and we pray. And this is what leaders are supposed to do. Leaders are supposed to spend a lot of time teaching the Word of God and praying. And he says, you raise up other men that will tend to these needs. And this is what the church is supposed to do, to raise up. And now look what they do. They say, you go ahead and choose the men. But we're going to give you the standards by which to choose. You choose the men, or else you might accuse us of bias. Because remember, the, 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 uh, the, 12, the 12 were all, all uh, uh, native Hebrews. They were all native Jews. They had come from that land. So they said, you go ahead and choose the people. But here's the requirements. They have to be, it has to be a man, seven men, and this word men is not a generic human being. It specifically means male as opposed to female. So it says, choose seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit, and of wisdom. 
So these were the requirements. If you're going to choose somebody, make sure, make sure that for this task, it's a man of a good reputation. Meaning that we want him to have a good reputation in the community. Make sure he pays his bills on time. That's an important thing in the kingdom of God. You know that? That you pay your bills on time or you talk to your creditors and you say, hey, could you give me some relief here? That you work the thing out. That we live differently. He says, make sure they have a good reputation and make sure that they are full of the Spirit. Remember that we had talked about baptism of the Spirit is something we receive when we receive the Lord. To be full of the Spirit is something that occurred again and again. It talked about, and they were filled with the Spirit. And then again, then they were filled with the Spirit. Filling of the Spirit comes for certain tasks that God has us to do. He fills us with the Spirit to do this out of a relationship with Him, and He's called us something to do. Make sure they're full of the Spirit. That they're men who overflow with something. When you're full of, some, full of the Spirit, you overflow with it. And also, they have the Spirit of wisdom. Because remember, you've got a bunch of widows over here who are complaining. And if you're going to deal with these issues... What are you smiling about? I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> if you're going to deal with these issues, you have to be able to listen to widows. And hear them out. And also, when you've got a lot of them, You have to have the wisdom to say, yes, I understand, and move on. You really do. You know, when I watch people and I watch who has the gift of administration versus who has the gift of mercy, the person with the gift of mercy will sit there and just get diverted from whatever task you had them go on, and they'll sit there listening listening to an individual's problem. That problem may be from a man or a woman, a widower or a widow, it doesn't matter. They'll just be totally diverted, listening to this problem and just empathizing with this person. This is this gift of mercy. But the person with the gift of mercy doesn't get a lot of things done. They get an important thing done. But you don't commit to the person with the gift of mercy this administrative task of making sure everybody is fed properly. Because you, 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 have, you have this one widow who grabs your hand and, you know, widows don't have anybody really to talk to. And here's this man and, you know, they're you know, coming by and here's somebody to talk to all of a sudden. This is real stuff. This really happens. And they want somebody to talk to. And they start talking and talking and talking. And somebody has to have the wisdom to say... I understand. It is hard. I understand. May God be with you. And then you move on. Person with a gift of administration, you watch their behavior. They are different. They move on. They do other things and they get this huge amount done. But then there's hurting people that haven't been ministered to that you just, you know, open up the gate for the people with the gift of mercy to go in and and do cleanup detail and minister to people. These are different gifts. But these men had to have this level of wisdom. You watch a pastor of a large church. Being a pastor is very different than being a CEO. A CEO, people do your bidding because you pay them. You give them money to do this. Being in a church, the vast majority of work in a church is done by volunteers, by people who just give of themselves out of service to the Lord and out of service to the body of Christ. So the way you talk to them, the way you work with them has to be different. It's not, I pay you for this, go do this. 
It is brother. This is the work that needs to be done. Here's the Lord's work. And you watch a pastor of a large church, they will have this tremendous wisdom in this gift of administration. You know, I had, I had lunch not too long ago with the, the, the pastor and associate pastor of a very large church here in town. And I just, I just loved that. And I, I said to this pastor, how do you do this? How do you, how do, you do this and this and this? And how, how do you have it so that you know, all your kids are grown and they're all in ministry and they all love you and you've built this huge church? This is a hard thing to do. It is really hard. And when I hear people making fun of that church, I'm like, you are crazy. You do one-tenth, accomplish one-tenth of what this man has done, and then maybe you could say something. But you're nowhere close to this individual. So he says, choose these guys, these sort of guys. They have to have a good reputation. They have to be full of the Spirit, meaning that they're godly men. And they have to have some wisdom. You can be godly, but not have much wisdom. And not know how to get the details of the problems conquered. So they said, you choose, but choose these sort of people. But ultimately, it says that when they were brought to them, it says, it, it says uh, in verse 6, and they brought them before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So, the way the church works, this church was working, is the apostles, in their wisdom, said, you choose the people, but here are the requirements. You can only choose among this. They've got to have these requirements. But even when they were brought to them, they didn't just right away say, okay, you've chosen them, we accept them. They prayed. They sought the will of God. Are these the men for the task? And then, after praying, they laid their hands on them. And this laying on of hands is actually quite characteristic of the Scriptures. This is... And... and uh, uh, the laying on of hands was, was there continuously. So, for example, Moses laid his hands on Joshua and committed to him the ministry. So this has, been, this has gone on for many, many years and continues throughout Judaism and throughout Christianity. The laying on of hands. And we will see, we will see in the scriptures that the only people, the only people that do miracles in the book of Acts are the apostles and the apostolic legates, meaning the people that the apostles have so designated. And that's not to say that no miracles were done through other people. I'm just saying if you look in the book of Acts, it says, and many other miracles were done by the apostles. It wasn't the people in general that the book of Acts talks about. It says that the apostles did these great miracles, and we see the miracles being done by these sort of men, men that the apostles had so designated. We could say, well, well, I believe that the whole church was doing miracles. That's fine for you to believe that. Nobody can change your belief. But, you know, I mean, teaching in the field of science, I have students that tell me, well, I believe such and such. I say, that's fine. You can believe that. But do the results say that? Or is that just a belief up here? Or is it something that, that, that's based upon something that you have actually seen? And if you look at the scriptures, what we actually see here is that the, the great miracles were being done by the apostles and by the people that they had so designated here in the book of Acts. That's what we see. And so, it says in verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte from Antioch. 
So look what it says. Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So, the Bible never speaks of a non-Jew becoming a Jew. Never, never, never. It says a non-Jew becomes a convert. Non-Jew becomes a convert to Judaism. So, even when it speaks of Ruth, where she said, Your God is my God. Your people, my people. It always spoke of Ruth the Moabitess. Never said Ruth the Jew. They always were recognized as converts. If they weren't Jews by nationality... So what does it mean to be a Jew? You'll get lots of different definitions today, but the scriptural definition is that they're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it spoke of Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, meaning that he had converted to Judaism. He had moved into the land. Now he had gotten saved. He was a, he, he had, was a convert, a, a convert to Judaism where he was following the Jewish practices, but now he got saved and he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. They chose this man. But every other man here, every name here is a Greek name. It is not a Jewish name. Every name is a Greek name. Now, many of the apostles had Greek names as well, but it always introduces their Jewish name as well. So what did the congregation do? This is pretty smart. The congregation said, look, we have a problem. The problem is that... The, the, uh, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, the ones that are Greek by culture, their widows are not getting properly taken care of. So we will choose men that are of that diaspora culture, that are Greek by, by, by language and culture. We will choose those men to minister. We, so these men are men of the diaspora themselves. And they are the ones that are chosen. Let me give you the analogy. Say you have a church that's got 30% African-Americans in that church. And the African-Americans, some, some smoldering discontent is occurring and they feel that, that they're being left out in some way. It would not be wrong, based on this passage, to appoint some African-American men in that church to oversee this problem, to make sure it gets taken care of, so that the African-American community does not feel like they're being slighted. This is exactly what is happening here. They're choosing men from that community. Police departments know this. They're going into an, uh, doing some work in a Hispanic area. What are they going to do? They're going to get some Hispanic policemen, a lot of them, to, to run that operation. Because there's an understanding of the people, the language, and the culture. And so this is exactly what they did. They chose these men... Who are of them. And so, but it, it, it talks about uh, Stephen. So remember, the book of Acts primarily follows two people, Peter and Paul. The only people that it follows other than people, Peter and Paul are people who were transitioning for, with the transition points for Peter or Paul to do certain works. And so it's, it mentions this person, Stephen, that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So not only was he full of the Spirit, which was a requirement, but he had this tremendous gift of faith as well. Not that the others didn't have it, because then it, then it just goes ahead and mentions Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, the, and the others. It doesn't mention any qualities about them in particular, because we're about to pick up Stephen as a major player in the end of Acts chapter 6 and throughout chapter 7. And the reason why Stephen is such a major player, because he is the link now between Peter and Paul. So it mentions this man, Stephen. And we know of Philip, too. 
Philip, this is not the disciple Philip, this is Philip who became Philip the Evangelist, which we read about in Acts chapter 8. So these men had many other gifts other than just waiting on tables. Other than just waiting on tables, they had many capabilities. So what happens is, when you wait on tables in service to Christ, God raises up, makes us aware of other gifts that we have. The gift of Stephen's teaching. Stephen becomes a mighty, mighty teacher by the end of this chapter. Well, the guy started by waiting on widows' tables. This is where he started. And so you get this attitude. You, you know, when my daughter was little, she was in my office one day, and somebody walked in, and one of the graduates walked in and said, Hey, boss, you know, can I do this and this and this and this? And I told him, and he walked out. My daughter looked at me. She said, I want people to call me boss. Well, you know, there's some, there's some mileage you've got to go through before that's going to happen. And, and so we may think that, oh, I have a particular gift of teaching. Make me a teacher. Not. It's not going to happen. You start by waiting on tables. This is the way the body of Christ is. But what happens is nobody just has one gift. Every believer has been endowed with gifts by God. We very often don't know what all those gifts are. And so sometimes we try different things. So, for example, um, I may feel that I have the gift of singing. But if I'm the only one that thinks I have the gift of singing, guess what? Right. I don't have it. Alright? So, even when I, you know, quietly, you know, be singing something quietly in my house in my prayer time, my kids are like, oh, Dad, stop. Please, stop. So, I know I don't have that gift. Sometimes we've got to try things. Who knows? I might have been, you know, a great star. Just latent star. So I had to try it. So you try different things. This is what happens in the body of Christ. It's okay to try different things and say, well, that didn't work. I'll tell you another thing I don't have the gift of. I can tell you exactly. It's the gift of mercy. I don't have that. This gift of compassion, of sitting there and, you know, and just putting my arm around the brother and, and just weeping with him. You know, I, I have the gift of confrontation. Just tell him what he ought to do. You just do this, you're going to be alright, and I get up and walk away. So I understand what gifts I don't have, because I've tried this. And I'm not comfortable in it. And you'll find that the, the gifts that you have, you flow in them, you feel comfortable with them. If you don't have a gift, you feel terribly uncomfortable doing this. And they also drain you. Uh, uh, so, I don't have the, the gift of, of putting big functions together. And I don't know what the scriptural, the scriptural word for that is. But some people can, you, you know, you tell them to, to organize this group of people and have all the different details. Like Shireen. I mean, she has all the different food and she's probably upset because nobody put out tablecloths or something. And all the different details of these things. She's great at that. I don't do that at all. If it were up to me for breakfast here... I might pick up some Krispy Kreme donuts and just leave the box on the table. That's what I would do. There's your breakfast. What do you want? Different people have different gifts. Shireen has this gift of hospitality where anybody walks in the door and she wants to feed them. And so she's taught me to feed them. So what I do is I offer them a bowl of cereal. You know, this, 
that's not the area that I do well, and I feel uncomfortable in that area. But you have certain giftings. This is what God gives you, and you try different things. These men were chosen to wait on tables, and then God started to manifest within them other gifts. And so, as you use this gift, as you use the gifts that God has given you, you actually excel and you get more. God gives you more gifts as you use the gifts that God has given you. We're going to see that, that, that at least in Stephen and Philip's case, and the only reason these two are mentioned is because Stephen is the bridge of, of Peter to Paul. Philip is the bridge of Peter to uh, uh, Gentile evangelism to open the door to the Gentiles. And that's the only reason they're mentioned. These other men probably carried out other similar great works. So, you know, there's these things that go on. These things that occur as we exercise the very gifts that God has given us. So if you you look in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 13. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is speaking about the, the Word of God and the way the Word of God works and what happens with the Word of God. And the reason I'm bringing this in, here's the relation. It is amazing the way God can give gifts to people and people will use those gifts and prosper and their faith grows and continues to grow in the midst of things. And the way other people may be equally well endowed with gifts. And things of the world begin to get in the way and begin to crowd these things out and bring distraction. So, if you, if you look in... in, in uh, um, well, we'll just pick it up in Matthew 13, verse 18, where Jesus is giving the interpretation of the parable. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown besides the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. For when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And when one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, the worries, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one who had, on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. So you can get the same word of God, the same message, the same teaching. Some people it just never sinks in and never even brings them to the point of conversion. Other people, he says, that they can come in and they get all excited. And then say you you try your gift and somebody doesn't appreciate it or something. You, You feel all terrible about this and you just go away, you never try it again. He says there's others that get distracted. There are so many believers that fall into this category that get saved, get excited about the Word of God and start moving in it. And then it says, the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. 
The word of God, when placed in the heart, is to bear fruit. That is what the word of God is supposed to do. There were seven men that were chosen. And they were chosen because of their reputation, because of the fullness of the Spirit, and because of their wisdom. And committed to them was a task. To the extent that they flowed in the task that God had given them, more would be given. But could you imagine Philip saying, for example, man, I mean, I just, I don't get paid for this like the apostles. You know, this isn't my full-time job. I've got a lot of other things to do here. I've got a lot of other things, and work is getting pretty tight. If your work gets in the way all the time of your ministry, there's a problem. Now, personally, I work a lot. I'm in, I'm in work, I don't know, 65 hours a week. So I work a lot, and I work seven days a week. But still, I have time for ministry. So when people tell me that they work so hard they have no time for ministry, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. And, and uh, uh, you know, there's just many things that can crowd into a life. But if you want to see the work of God in your life, remember what happens. Jesus warns us, the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, can take this word and make it unfruitful. He says at the same time, the same word can take the same sort of people and cause them to bear fruit a hundredfold, sixtyfold, or thirtyfold. They can bear fruit. God has fruit that can be born in your lives if you'll take this word and carry it and run with it. Take this word and make your life fruitful. God has called you to this. These men had fruitful ministries because they took the gifts that God had given them and they used them for the glory of God. There really is no excuse not for, for not participating in either a campus group or a church, or both. There really is no excuse. And this will set a pattern for your life. It really will set the pattern for your life. If you take this word, and you, make, you take some ministry, and use it according to your gifts. When I, was an un, when, when I was an undergraduate, I did a lot of different Bible studies. When I was a graduate student, started a Bible study in, in the chemistry department. When I was a postdoc, I was at Stanford, started a Bible study at the chemistry department at the University of Wisconsin as a postdoc. Started a Bible study there in the chemistry department. Worked out well for my ministry. I was in the lab all the time. So I didn't have to go far. Right there in the department, I could do something. I could do something. And then when I started my first job, imagine if I said, well, you know, I'm really kind of busy now. Being an assistant professor is really hard. You've got all these things to do and all, you know. Maybe when I get tenure. And then, you know, when you become an associate professor with tenure, you still got a lot of things to do. And then they start dumping all these other tasks on you because they think you're not an assistant professor, you've already got tenure. And then, it, then I could have sat there and said, well, maybe when I'm a full professor, then, then I'll start having a ministry. You know, but by then, you know, I might be ready to retire. That's how quickly life catches up with us. And that's the exact words that people go through in life. I am warning you with this. You take up ministries now, now in your life, campus ministries, church ministries, you pick them up so this is your task, whether it's singing in the choir or working with kids, doing something. And then you'll find in this that God will show you your gifts and He will give you more. He will give you more. He will give you greater grace. And so that then when I'm offered to do things 
that reflect my gift, but I am very careful before I turn it down. Because I know that as I exercise the gifts that God has given me, God will so grant me more. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Now confirm it to our hearts, I pray. Confirm it to our hearts. Take these young people, and Father, I pray that You would cause them to be able to look at life and understand that service to You does not mean a life full of tro- uh, a life without any troubles. Father, that they would see that these apostles had many troubles brought upon them even because of service to You. And Lord, I pray that You would so work in their hearts to exercise the gifts that You have given them, whatever those gifts may be, that they would exercise them in the body of Christ. Lord, I pray for Your grace to be poured out and Your great blessing. Touch their hearts, O God, and draw them to You. Draw them closer. And Father, I pray for the unbelievers that You turn them to Jesus, that their hearts would be open and that the Word would not get choked out. And I commit this to You in the name of Jesus. Amen.